Welcome to the Succeeding Over All Roadblocks LifeCast, a show about self-discovery and vibrating higher in every area of your life. Each week, I'll have conversations with some of my favorite people who are soaring over life's challenges. They'll share their struggles, but more importantly, the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Keisha Whitaker, entrepreneur and transformational speaker. Let's get ready to soar. Right now is early voting in Tennessee. And for this week's episode, I wanted to bring someone on the show that I consider a true public servant who will tell it like it is and let us know what is at stake in this election. Mike Bland is the National Director of Leaders of Color, a program that prepares black and brown leaders across the country for public office with extensive training and support. Their vision is of a nation where black and Latino communities are represented by elected officials who not only look like them, but are tireless advocates for quality education. Mike is from Long Branch, New Jersey, and has committed his entire career to public service. Before joining Leaders of Color, Mike served as the campaign manager for Johanna Hayes in 2018, making her the first African-American woman elected in all of New England to Congress. Prior to his time with Representative Hayes, Mike worked as Deputy Chief of Staff for New Jersey Assemblywoman Shavonda Sumter and as the Deputy District Director for Congresswoman Elizabeth Etsy of Connecticut. Most notably, Mike contributed to the incredible success of the Obama for America campaign, where he served as the Northeast Regional Field Director in North Carolina and conducted region-wide plans for voter registration and event organizing for volunteers. He has also run for office himself. On top of all of that, he is a devoted husband and doting father of twin girls. So please welcome to the show, Mike Bland. Hey, Mike. <laughs> Hi, how are you? How you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> oh, no. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah. I remember meeting you when I was selected to be in Leaders of Color, and it was just an amazing experience for me. But when I first met you, I was like, okay, he's a good brother. Very real, open, <laughs> down to earth. But then I was like, he's a real heavy hitter in the game, you know, in the political game. <laughs> so I was like, you know, how do I, how do I approach this? And then I realized we had the commonality of you live in Jersey. I lived in Jersey yes. for a few years and worked for the legislature. Yes. So I had a taste of the political world, but not quite like you. How long have you been with LOC now, Leaders of Color? Oh man, it's been roughly about a, Gosh, been about a year, close to a year and a half now. It seems like three, four years. I mean, this is this work is eyes open, eyes closed. There is no clock. So yeah, about, about roughly a year and a half. So you have a phenomenal track record before you even came to Leaders of Color. You had a track record <laughs> of leading candidates to victory, and you know, being deputy chief of staff for some legislators and things of that nature. So tell me about some of those experiences and probably like your best campaign stories and things like that. Oh man. Oh man. You're taking me down memory lane. I don't have, I don't have, it's, it's too early in the afternoon. You know, I need a, a bourbon yeah. with a, with a dash of orange bitters. <laughs> you know, I have some great campaign stories, but I'll tell you, I mean, I've, like you said, I've had the opportunity to work on a number of campaigns, initiatives, work in the legislature, New Jersey state legislature. 
presidential campaigns for the latter part, latter part of uh, 10 plus years. You know, you know whether it's with someone with Shavonda Sumter, whether it was with Mayor Pedro Cigar Hartford, Nick Mosby, who's now the council president of Baltimore, our future president, Joe Biden, I was a state director in New Hampshire in 2015 for his, for his PAC, which was supposed to turn into his presidential campaign in 2015, President Obama in 2012, Congressman Elizabeth Esteen in 2014, and I can go on and on and on, a number of school board races, number number of different races and initiatives. Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, right? First African-American congresswoman out of New England with Sister Ayanna Pressley in 2018. But I would tell you, probably my most, I would say the best ride, gosh, would, would probably be North Carolina 2012. I mean, it was with a group, it was... The only black, as we like to call it, quarter was the only black, all all black staff. And and I have friends on that campaign that I still to this day talk to. And in this business, you know, it's, it's you know, folks are transactional. They're moment friends. They're not movement friends. And so those friends of mine that, you know, Anthony Stevens, Hans Golf, Josh Harris, Greg Jackson, some of them, they came in French. Some Barry Birch, can't forget Barry Birch. And I know people are like, who are these people? But, you know, please do yourself the liberty to, to look them up. They're phenomenal people. But I tell you, it was, they called the, the region of North Beast. And, and, you know, I would say that the crux of the story is that, I, you know, it was we flipped the Republican county for the first time. And this is the Obama campaign you're talking about, right? It, yes, okay. yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, President Obama's campaign. And we flipped that for the first time in United States history in 2012. And it hasn't been done again. And so, but we had the whole county, we out that the whole Northeast corridor, we were supposed to just be there for a little bit. We ended up staying through the duration of the campaign from June to to November. And we were supposed to get like shut down uh, about two or three times, but we were outperforming. And, and just the folks I met, the great Reverend Barber, before he started the people's, you know, poor people's campaign, sister Venetia Butterfield, I mean, Octavia Spencer, uh, Mayor, I, I mean, just, I can go on and on. Me and Fonz were Bentley, you, you remember Fonz, yeah, Fonz yeah. did his thing with Diddy for a yeah. while. Fonz and I uh, ended up, you know, staying close friends for about three years. I mean, just the fact that we made history had never gotten since then has still have not been able to eclipse the amount of volunteers and effort and energy that I've seen through a, a coordinated campaign at that time. And what does it take? Because you were the Northeast Regional Field Director for that campaign. So what Definitely does it take to, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. take on that type of role? A lot of coffee, I'll tell you. A lot of coffee, a lot of bojangles. Um, I used to eat a lot of grits with the, you know, a lot of grits with the uh, sausage gravy on top because you're on a shoestring budget. You know, you're not getting paid nothing, and you're traveling. You know, the size of the Northeast, probably about two to three hours from one corner to another, and and it just, you know, I, I I'd be lying if I didn't say I would. You know, had a friend who was a director. But but knew of some of my work in New Jersey. I had actually just run for office in New Jersey in 2010. I ran for city council and had lost by a very slim, very, very, very slim margin. Got seventh out of 21 people. And our council takes five at large. But anyway, you know, I'll tell you, it, it took, you know, I lost 30 pounds. I lost 30 pounds. I was doing a lot of walking. I was doing a lot of talking, a lot of driving. There's no sitting behind a desk and and Google Docs. No, no, no. You're out. You know, you're out. And for me, I lead. I lead with, hey, I'll grab a clipboard and let's go out and register folks to vote. Hey, I'll go out to your rally and register folks to vote. I'll go speak at your rally. I'll do the grunt work. Let's get on the whiteboard and, you know, whiteboard out what this rally needs to look like and how do you get people there? You know, who are your sagans in the community? And then also creating different initiatives that weren't asked of us, you know, you know, doing things with clergy, trying to include local elect, black elected officials to get involved because they, they were never asked to be involved before. And so that's, what I look at now, even now, is like a people 
are, are not aware of the process because they're not asked to be a part of the process. Although democracy is somebody, it's not a spectator sport. It's, it's very much a contact sport. You got to get in there and you got to get after it. But, you know, for me, it was more or less, you know, I, I created, you know, tangible coalition groups to kind of, you know, I, I created Bikers for Barack. I don't even have a motorcycle, but we had a group, we had a coalition, which is Bikers for Barack. We started Ballers for Barack and we were doing three on three tournaments around Northeast North Carolina. I mean, these are things that folks aren't doing now, but it was to get people registered to vote, to drop in some surrogates, to talk about the importance of voting, what was on the ballot. And so it was a lot. It was a lot. It was probably the greatest, greatest time of my life in electoral politics. And you mentioned that you had run for office and you were the ripe old age of 22 when you ran for office. So, <laughs> so talk about that and that experience of just, you know, what made you decide to get out there so young and, and go after it? You know, it, it was more or less me knowing the voids that were here at home. And, you know, I said, you know, as we all do, we get out of college, you know, we think we know everything. We're ready to conquer the world. You know, I got my studying in. I'm ready to go. So much as I live in a small old Italian town, it's, you know, pretty much, <clears throat> you know, a large population of Italian, you know, got African American, Latino, but predominantly Italian. I took Italian in college, right? Cause I said, when I'm going to, I'm going to shock them when I go back, I'm going to go back and I'm going to walk in the Tuzios, I'm going to rock in the Rockefellers, I'm going to speak Italian. And they were blown away. And I got some Italian votes because even I got literature. I even produced some literature that was in Italian. They were like, this guy is serious. But I, I thought there was a void that needed to be filled, even like I feel now. I think there was a void that needed to be filled. And, too many times I'd be at the dinner table from the successes of my mother and my stepfather and elected officials and governors alike and, and statesmen and, and everybody was talking about them and they and, and they was. I'm like, no, like, why are we waiting? You know, I'm going to pick up a clipboard, get my petition signed and I'm going to go knock on every single door. I, I ran through three pairs of shoes. I was raising twin girls with my wife, you know, like we weren't even married yet. We weren't even married yet. We, you know, I know this is the plan, you know, and, 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 and God laughs when you make a plan. But, you know, they, you know, the, the, you know, my wife and the babies. And, and, and so I was trying to juggle how to be a father, how to be fiance slash husband and, and how to look like a, you know, look like somebody who could serve far constituents just because I thought there was so much that we could do and there's so much more that we can do. And, you know, in fact, I feel, you know, I still feel the same way now, but I feel like I'm in a better position now. I don't need to send elected office to get accomplished what I need to get accomplished. And that's the thing, like you, like I said, you were young. So were your parents very involved in politics or how, how did you get, I know you majored in political science in college, but when I was 22, I was trying to live my best life. You out here running for office. <laughs> so. You know, I like to say that was a mistake I made. It's like I was... I should have been out, you know, riding around and getting it, you know, enjoying my, enjoying my family, maybe trying to get on a different trajectory. But my mother, for the latter part of my life, and even now she's the chief of staff at the Department of Education here in New Jersey. But, you know, she was deputy chief of staff for Senator Menendez, Senator Lautenberg, Congressman Frank Pallone. And, and so I'd seen when folks like Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman was an assembly member in the General Assembly. Right? That's <laughs> right? I'm going to tell you something. Right? I worked with Bonnie. Bonnie was Bonnie. amazing. And to see her as yeah. a congresswoman now, oh, my God. So happy for her. I love her. I love yeah. her. You know, like James G, right? James G. I mean, yeah, James my guy, James, yeah. Regina Thomas. You know, Regina's like a guy. I mean, the, all Michelin Davis, Marilyn Day, all these folks used to come to my house. You know, Rick Thick and Jerry Gale, all these guys used to come to my house. And so I would see black excellence. I would say I was afforded the opportunity to see black excellence. You know, Governor McGreevy used to come to the house all the time. I remember when he lost, you know, two days after he lost to Chrissy Todd Whitman, he was at my mother's house playing. I'm like, 
you just got off an election, Ma. She was like, nah, he, he wants to run again. But, you know, I'd seen it and, uh, you know, I thought I felt the impact and what a, a, a impact of what civic leadership is, what electoral leadership is. And again, like we fight for the most minuscule things when we should be at the table asking for large bodies of work as well. We're not asking for dollars, but bodies of work to forward our progress in our communities. You know, I often say we don't need a task force. We know what's wrong in our communities. We just need to be afforded the opportunity to help empower that and changes instead of asking for that change. So, and that's kind of where, where my makeup even is today is like, that's stop asking for permission. You know, even if you got to create your lane, you know, the great show Chisholm said, if you don't get invited to the table, bring your own chair. Right. And so I feel like for the latter part of my life, I've been walking around with a folding chair. Like, no, we won't be a part of this conversation because that part, it, you know, we, we need to be at the table for every discussion, not just uh, discussions about black and brown people. Absolutely. And I was thinking about, so I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Okay, okay, okay. And I'm okay. up there in New Jersey. So I have to shout out my line sisters that are up there. Three of them are in the in politics right now. So Marilyn Dunham, she's on the Burlington School Board. Then Verlina Reynolds-Jackson, mm-hmm. she's in the legislature. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then Missy Balmier, who is a political Missy. strategist. So you know all of them. So, yes. I mean, they, they're up there killing it. And so... I have, you know, my memories of working up there in politics. And that's why I really first got to my taste of it. And I was like, this is a for real blood sport. Like <laughs> <laughs> Jersey politics, people try to tell me, no, it's different. I'm like, no, 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 no. Jersey politics is different than anywhere. <laughs> you know, this is, it, you're right. It's a blood sport. It is not for the faint of heart. Yeah, everybody like then I worked in politics down here and I was looking around like, man, this is like, honestly, small potatoes compared to what? I saw happening in Jersey. It was just really like, whoa. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. You know, it's like when you have folks, you know, their representatives, I won't say no names, who are just sitting there for 20 plus years. That could never happen in Jersey. Now, let's you know, talk about that. Let's 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 break that up real quick. So, <laughs> well, the perfect segue is to talk about leaders of color, actually. So let's, that'll take us into that. So you have been a part of leaders of color for almost you know, like a year and a half. You said, tell me what you do there as a national director and what the program's all about. Yeah. So as a national director, what I do is really high level strategic planning around one, you know, a myriad of things. Our curriculum of our training program, which is, you know, pre-COVID was 70 hours over six months. And and so a lot, you know, I know some of it has been dialed down because of COVID because we're asking folks to do a lot virtually and shout out to you and your cohort because, you know, to to not only show up and do this during a pandemic and virtually is, is I applaud you. I couldn't do it. You know, I, I mean, I'm part of organizations where I have like, I, I can't do it. I'm zoomed out and you guys have zoomed in. And so, you know, applauding, let me just put that, let me put that subtle plug in there. But not only that, we think about where do we want to go next? Where do we want to infuse our organization strategically around change and uh, around black and brown communities, around education reform, education, educational equity, social justice change, environmental justice, all things that are education reform, if you think about it. And so we're we're an organization designed to support black and brown leaders civically and electorally, right? And so we want to be able to be that organization that gives them the tools to be able to lead civically or electorally. And so we've just seen so many, so many different times in, you know, our communities, we're looking for thought partners or we're looking for leaders and they don't exist or they don't look like us. And so it's not that we are, you know, supplying tools that don't even exist. No, we know the issues. We're just not being, have the ability to be brought to the table. So what we then try to do is then match our folks up with coaches and then who maybe help open up more doors and more avenues towards success. And so 
It's an all-encompassing program right now. We're in Memphis. We're in New York. We're in New Orleans. We're getting ready to potentially expand to Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Denver, San Antonio, St. Louis, Kansas City, just to name a few. And that could all change. We have another. We have about four more of the cities that we were contacted by, our folks, partners in those prospective cities that contacted us to talk about the Leaders of Color program. So that's just a little snapshot of what I do. Well, let me go deep into it because Memphis was the original cohort. You know, so let it be forever on the record that you said Memphis was your baby. This number one in your heart. And so I was in the third cohort. And so there's a long list of alums that have run for office that have come out of here that are doing some history breaking, groundbreaking things in the state of Tennessee. And it's just amazing to see. But first and foremost, the training that we got, even I felt like, OK, we didn't get everything that we that we were supposed to get out of the experience as far as meeting in person and traveling and getting to know some legislators and things like that nationally. But I will tell you that the training that we got, you can't find that anywhere else. I I challenge anybody to come for leaders of color and the amount of training that we got from soup to nuts on how to run a campaign, how to be a candidate or a strategist or an operative or an advocate. You can, I mean, from fundraising to communicating Communications plan, campaign planning, strategy, mock interviews. I mean, you name it. We were in the in the thick of it. And then we had some of the best trainers from all over mm-hmm. who had worked on major campaigns and taught us all of these skill sets. So I feel confident being able to go out and help anybody work on their campaign right now, despite the past experience I've had in politics. So and this was the first time that I actually worked on a campaign. I worked in Mm. politics, but it never worked on a campaign. So this was the first time where I was involved doing communications on someone's campaign. So talk about some of the the great strides that you've had, the organizations had in placing and preparing black and brown leaders to go out here and run because we needed those tools. I'll tell you, it was not easy. I tell you, when I arrived July 1st, believe it or not, my daughter was coming back. I like to tell the story. I don't know if I told it to you, but my daughter was coming back. It was a week before she was going to Paris during the Women's World Cup. My daughter was invited to play with a national team in Paris during the Women's World Cup. And so literally that Friday before we left, Shavar called me, offered me the opportunity. It's like, hey, do you need two weeks? you need a month? I said, I'll see you. I'll see you eight days. And so I was on a seven-hour flight from France. I got back at four in the morning, got up. At seven to get on the ferry and go back to my first day at work. And, you know, I was handed a folder, you know, very, very small binder. This is our program. We need you to take it to the next level. And it was originally a program, I think, about 40 hours. And so I added an additional, so everybody can be mad at me, I added an additional 30 hours of campaign training. I think we got, you know, we afforded advocacy training, but at least in campaign training, what I had the ability to do was, quite frankly, say, how are we preparing our folks to run for office if they don't know anything about campaigning? So, you know, I brought, you know, I like to say a large portion of my my own political theory, for lack of better words, whether right, wrong, or indifferent. But I think it's led to some historical wins. And so, you know, you think of my first cohort that I came in on was cohort two, you know, the Shalia Harris's of the world, you know, just became the first African-American woman ever to represent District 5, which is a more or less a Trump school district. board. Yeah, on the school um, board. And school board, on the school board, right? So, you know, and, and sister is bold and unapologetically black, right? I love me some sister Shalia Harris. And then you got Marquita Bradshaw, who a lot nobody gave a chance. Let me be frank. 
Nobody gave us a chance. And I, and I don't tell I said, Marquis, are you sure you don't want to think about state rap, state senate before? No, I, I, no, there's not environmentalists. That's, and I'm like, okay. And she ran, only raised $20,000. And now she's not only the first African-American woman running for United States Senate in the country, she's the first African-American woman to ever win the state of Tennessee. So I like to call her the queen of Tennessee currently right now and hopefully for the foreseeable future. But these, I mean, uh, you know, you talk about intensive training. We actually came in when we were revamping the curriculum. So we were actually changing the curriculum. They were learning a new curriculum at the same time. And, you know, they had to write the sample plans. They had to figure out their one number. They had to figure out who were they going to, who were the partners that, that they were going to talk to. How do you talk to them? How do you make your ass? You know, and so, I mean, then you think about the brothers and sisters that ran, but they lost, but they were transformational candidates. You talk about Christy Sullivan who ran against Kevin Woods, who, you know, had higher name recognition than the sitting, than the sitting mayor and the sitting congressman, right? And, and she did phenomenal. I mean, she's, she, I think she's a force to be reckoned with. You talk about Isaac Freeman run a state, state executive committee man seat in uh, District 33. You talk about Clifford Stockton. You talk about Anya Parker. Love me some Miss Anya Parker, who's a beautician, right? And these are leaders that we're looking for. I'm not looking for the folks who used to be, you know, who all fight highfalutin and used to serve as chief of staff and walk around. No, no, no. Give me the, give me the Anya Parkers that, that, you know, and we know, look, listen, listen, I know you go get your, like, you from Jersey, so I know you know about getting your hair now. Right. There's nobody who knows the people better in their community than the, than the beauticians. And they're the like the therapists of the community. Right. Between them and, and the AU basketball coach or the Pop Warner football coach, they know the community better than anybody else. So why are we not empowering them to represent the community to, to, to kind of have real transformative change? And so for me, that those were the folks that we wanted to see run, you know, folks who were pastors, deacons, you know, who who really had skin in the game in their community, but said, ah, I'm on the fence. You know, us being able to tell them what's at stake and why it's at stake. And here's how you talk about it, I think, was is how we wanted to approach leaders of color. So leaders of color from and then you think about you think about New Orleans. We have three people running for school board in New Orleans. In New York, we have four people who are going to be running for city council next year. One just got appointed to, this, to the community board, which is like a step below city council in New York. And this is just out of this cohort that graduated two wow. weeks ago. The city council is flipping over for the first time as a whole because of new legislation, because of term limits and new legislation for the first time in New York's history. So, they, you know, over 70 seats are up in the New York City Council across the five boroughs. And so I say all this to say that we we started this in the premise that we needed transformational people to be able to give them not all the tools, but some of the tools to get them sharpened and to get them really buttoned up on the issues and then send them out in the world and defeat what we think is systemic, you know, I like to call it systemic racism, systemic, let's call it integration, if you want to call that, real real change. And so hopefully, you know, I mean, you could talk to Ben and I can't, but those are the leaders that were, or the, you know, the continued history that we want to keep for our Leaders of Color program, because we'll continue to break glass ceilings. I think Marquita was the first to poke a hole and it's starting to come down. But just think in 2022, we're still going to be looking for people to be the first, which is mm-hmm. crazy. So we're, we're, we're excited about our future. Yeah. Really and I'm are. looking at how how much we are really changing the game, getting more black women into politics, getting more you know, black and brown people in general into politics and really stepping into those roles because it gives us the confidence. You know, for so long, we didn't have the resources. We didn't have the tools. We didn't know what we were stepping into. And you get slaughtered out there trying to run. You know, mm-hmm. and so this gives all the tools, equips you and has you ready. You have coaches who are 
political who have run for office, who have been in, in the trenches or understand the game. And they come alongside you, give you the advice, give you and it makes you really assess yourself, too. You're looking at how do I put together a campaign plan? What are my strengths and weaknesses and what is going to make me a good candidate out here? And what are the issues that I really and truly care about? I'm looking for people that are public servants, not career politicians. Talk about the difference between public service and, and a politician. I would say public servant for me is somebody who recognizes they don't need to get paid for what they do. They're not looking for the, the, the city to give them a car or an extra stipend to represent the community. It's somebody who's going to, you know, again, has an eyes open, eyes closed mentality and just say, well, I'm off the clock. As a public servant, you're never off the clock. You're always fighting for your issues. You're always advocating for the for the folks who have less. You're always advocating for, you know, your brothers and sisters who just want to, they don't want to hand out. They want to hand up, right? Just help me up. And so that to me, that's the stark difference. And again, I point to our leaders in our program who understand that, you know, Marquita Bradshaw, when she ran, when she announced for office, she had $2.46 in her campaign. I mean, in her, in her personal checking account, Marquita Bradshaw was broke, had filed for bankruptcy. To me, that's somebody who's a public servant who put herself Right. Right. You know, she put her, you know, she put herself before anything else. And she, I mean, she put the, the country first, Tennessee first. And, and so, you know, to me, that's a that's that's a that's a definition of a public servant. She doesn't should tell you, I don't need to be there as a lifetime. I don't need to be there a life, a, a lifetime appointment in the United States Senate. But I need to be there to make sure the systemic change in the environmental justice system and the criminal justice system and the education reform system. But we you know where, where we are now. We have these folks who think, you know, our, our, even our lo- even our elected officials, luckily and nationally, who, you know, our congressmen and our senators who are there for 30 and 20. Like, come on, man. Like, no, move over. Right. Like, let's think about how many things you've done over the course of a decade. If it warrants that you need to get elected, you get reelected. But these are folks who, you know, who, if you're somewhere long enough, you're, you know, you're not doing it for the interests of the people. You're doing it for the interests, small interests, not big interests. And the big interests is for the people. And so I think we have a lot of we have a lot of those, quote unquote, politicians now and not public servants. And then that's the other thing, too. Your program is so necessary because they're not training the next generation. They're not preparing for succession and passing the mantle. It's like they want to stay there until they die. And so that's why leaders of color is so important to the work that needs to be done. And so education reform is at the heart of you know, what leaders of color and education reform now is what it's all about. So I wanted to get your thoughts around how we look at education right now, particularly virtual education and the huge amount of a, a learning loss that we're experiencing with our kids. So what what are your thoughts around that? You know, I think as I think about it, I come from a very interesting home. My wife is a teacher. She's an educator. My, I have two girls, twin twin girls who are just walking into the middle school this year, right? We all remember going to middle school, freshman beat down or sixth grade beat down or first time you had a locker or uh, first time you switched classes during the bell. And and so there's a, there's that social gap. And then I look at it from a teaching perspective, you know, you identify, you know, there are going to be issues, right? And whether it's like trying to get somebody to pay attention on a computer all day, we're adults and we we struggle with this. So can you imagine what is going through our kids' heads, even pre-K? They're virtual, and that's unrealistic to ask somebody to sit home with the child while their te- while their teacher is trying to teach them, right? And so what happens if mom and dad has to work, right? Who's who's taking on that baron? Is it the seventy you know burden? Excuse me, like is it the seventy year old or uh, seventy five, eighty year old grandmother, grandfather who's never really worked a computer? And let's be realistic about that. And so I, I made a mistake not too far back, and I told my wife right before I said in 1918 they went through the same thing, right? The Spanish flu, 
And I said, they'll be resilient. Our kids are smarter now than we all were. And I realized maybe about a month and a month and a half ago that the word resilient is a horrible word. It means you always have to work through something, right? And particularly with black and brown kids, we we have so much mental and emotional trauma, right? Our kids are turning on the TV. Doesn't matter. You remember when George Floyd, you know, when George Floyd was killed by the police, right? They Nickelodeon, right? Said they were stopping for eight minutes and twenty six seconds. You know, the, the kids saw it everywhere. So. You know, even when they're home, they now we used to be able to hide this from them, right? We can't hide anything from them, and so there's there's a burden there. But I think this is a great opportunity to talk about leaders of color, like more black and brown folk, okay, African American, Latino folks, to take ownership of their communities, particularly look at school board, right? School board is who's balancing your budget. How, how, do you have representatives who have talked about your budget outwardly and out loud? If you haven't, it's time to get them out, right? You know, everybody wants to go at the ribbon cutting. Everybody wants to go when a new school is built or a great initiative is passed. But not many public officials want to stand on a chopping board and say, hey, I'm going to go on Facebook Live every day for an hour, Monday through Friday, and give an update. If I have one, I'm going to give an update or I want to hear from you. You may have some suggestions. You know, my wife went to school. They got a survey three days before they went to school. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Right. And so I say all that to say maybe it was a week before they went to school. But I say all that to say, like, I'll look at your emergency management preparation. And so, look, this may not be the last of a pandemic happens, but I think this also warrants the opportunity for us to look at learning differently. You know, in Memphis, I know you all have a huge issue with the digital divide, right? 42% of the city does not have access to internet. That's a problem in 2020. So, you know, people think Jim Clyburn is just talking about middle of nowhere, South Carolina, when he's talking about bridging, bridging the gap in the digital divide. He's talking about places like Memphis, which is a southern city. When almost less than half do not have access to internet. So the, the one thing I appreciate about the pandemic is that it did bring about a lot of racial disparities that a lot of people didn't talk about. You know, three things people didn't talk about was race, religion, and politics. Guess what we're all talking about now? Race, religion, and politics. And so I appreciate that from the pandemic because it is, it has allowed us to put these issues to the forefront where in the past we didn't touch them. Oh, no, it was taboo. No, yeah, you got to talk about them. Yeah, yeah, directed DNI. Yeah, guess what we're talking about this week? And so it, it's allowed us to even think about even the office space, how that has to look different, you know, more minority. T- like it's just a mirror of issues, right? Like why do we have less school psychologists and more resource officers in the school? We don't need it, right? Let's, let's provide more supports for our kids in our school system versus showing them a gun or showing, always showing force or always using the word disciplined or somebody needs to be disciplined. For me, that's a trigger. So what does that mean for our younger black and brown kids? And what do you think about the idea of maybe year round school now to kind of because it is virtual and because it is something that we we have to bridge the gap that was already in a in an academic gap to begin with. And now there's an even huger gap. I think it needs to be brought to the table. I think there's no question that we need to start the discussion about year round schooling. I think if you think about it, we've missed a half year of school already. Last March to September, I mean, the South, it, you know, August. Uh, so we've missed almost a half year of schooling. So we have to catch our communities up. Look, America is, is in a, and this is what is blinding me to that 41 to 40 to 42% that still support the gentleman who's currently occupying the White House. America is still last in its response around the world. Everybody has figured out how to go back to school, how to go back to work, how to go back to some kind of normalcy for back, lack of better words. We still haven't quite figured out because we have this red versus blue divide. Oh, I don't know if it's real. I don't know if it's fit. like whatever it is. Right. Like America's had this problem for more or less. I hate this patriotism. 
Like, I've only been allowed to see his patriarch one time, and that was after 9-11, surprisingly, because it was attacked by black and brown folk, right? And so I wonder if we would have had that same response by somebody else, but don't worry, I'll wait. To me, I think it has to be put on the table for year-round schooling in terms of what is needed for our babies to get caught up to speed. But I'll say, including that, it's time for us to also have the discussion about higher pay for our teachers. You know, I'll tell you, New Jersey, the starting salary, I think, is like 52K, 54. That's not enough. Like, I'm not asking you to be the whole thing has to be able to support your family. But you know what? In New Jersey, that's not enough to, to support your family on a halftime basis. You know, you need somebody who who has double that pay to at least try to survive, at least try to survive. And so I think that's the other thing that we need to start to think about as Americans is like, how many of our people live on that not need to need basis, survive to survive basis, Right. And there's no way in the freest country in the world we should still be we should still be arguing about how people are surviving and next the pandemic. And so I think it should be put on the table until our kids get caught up, you know, and, and there should be some accountability measures, accountability measures put in place to understand that. You know, I think it should be put on the table. And I think that's a good way, a good segue into what's going on right now when it comes to voting and, and voting in the best interest of our babies. Right. So right now. We're in the thick of early voting here in Tennessee. So I wanted you to talk about the importance of getting the vote out and making a plan. Because we talked about that in, in, in the class. It's like, make a plan to vote. Because now you're seeing the lines are longer. They're cutting down. How do you have an arena where all these people are going to vote and you have five voting machines? Yeah, you know, it's, it's systemic voter oppression. And what I, what, I, what I say leads systemic voter oppression or systemic oppression will lead to American depression. And that's a fact. And so when you look at, you know, they're like, oh, the people were resilient. They stood in line for 11 hours just in the first day. Of that's not a V. They that's shouldn't even resilient. have to. That's voter suppression. Right? <laughs> right? That's, that's right. voter suppression. All day. But, but, but that's when you talk about making a plan is so important. Right. And so, you know, there were uh, and we joked about this. Our group, we call ourselves the best of friends. But we joked about this. We said, you know, McDonald's telling you you get a plan to vote. Target getting you t- uh, a plan. You go to Walmart. It says on the back, do you have a plan to vote? Everybody trying to tell you something, but you're not listening. <laughs> yeah. Right. Even even companies that think they're like, they're like, did you vote? Like, but you know what they're trying to say? Like, I need you to go out there, go vote for Joe Biden because this this guy is nuts. And, you know, it, it's where are you going to go vote? Where do I go vote? Am I registered? And we, we do hear this all the time. This is the most important election of our lifetime. You know, unfortunately, I've heard that phrase. I've heard that phrase about three times since I've been an adult. So you talk about resilience or you talk about post-traumatic syndrome, right? Like, you think I heard that in 2008. That was true. I heard that in 2016. That was true. And I'm hearing that in 2020. It is true. These, these are the most important elections of our lifetime. Right now, we're looking at on CNN and I won't, I refuse to turn on TV. I always have the TV on in my office. I refuse to turn it on because I will not, I will not put myself in a mental depression by watching these Supreme Court justice hearings. I'm not listening because it's bullcrap. I won't curse on your show, but it's bullcrap, right? The mere fact that Mayor Garland was out 230 days towards election day. But these guys are rushing somebody in less than 25 days from election day. But you have to think about what's on the ballot. And people are like, oh, I don't believe in voting. If you don't believe in voting, why are they trying so hard to take away from you? It sounds so cliche, but it's true. You know, you talked about, we talked about Harris County, the biggest county, uh, one of the biggest counties in the country. I think it's the biggest county in the United States. They have one drop box ballot. One. One. So what happens when it overflows? Who's picking, who's making sure nobody's going away and picking up ballots and taking away ballots? 
So yeah, I'm, you know, fortunately, I'm in a place where I don't have to stand in line. I went, cast my ballot, did it on a piece of paper, and I dropped it in the box. But I can imagine standing in line. But that's part of making a plan. Are you going to vote absentee? Are you going to vote in person? And being prepared to vote. You know, today's the last day to register to vote in New Jersey. You know, do you have a plan, right? And and don't say I'll. I'm not voting or I don't I don't believe in voting like like that. That that that's got to stop. That's got to stop because there's this too much that's on the ballot for us not to 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 ensure that we vote. Talk about the mindset of the average voter. You've worked in the field. You've seen it. What does that look like? Very apathetic. Very apathetic. They don't believe anything changes. They don't believe that someone has their voice. They don't believe that. The issues are being heard. They've lived in poverty their whole life. They've heard people come make their make plans on infrastructure and change, but they still pull out on a pothole or dirt road. They believe that somebody's going to come in and change their school system, but they still haven't had the damn light bulb changed in the locker room since they were in the seventh grade. And now it's 2020 and that was 1986. They've been made false promises on jobs while while white folks walk around and have careers and and slush funds as 401ks. And we're talking about how do we become a part of a union? We're still fighting for $15 an hour, which still only puts us about 45K a year, about 40 to 45K a year. That's what I've seen. That's what I've heard over and over again, right? We, we, We still, you know, we talk about our veterans. They're good enough to go overseas and serve as service bodies. But when they come back, it's like our elected officials don't even know they exist. You know, our teachers are still paying for supplies for their classroom. They're being told to support the teachers union, but they're saying, why are the teachers, why is the teachers union not asking for us to get a higher uh, earned income tax credit? Our parents are, at, are saying it's only $2,400 a month. Is that, an, I mean, a year, is that enough to come back from our federal government and a child earn income tax credit? I mean, that's what we hear. And so just trying to imagine trying to convince that voter, right? Or folks say that, oh, we deserve a second chance. Second chance is never given to us. And the only way that they communicate to black black and brown folks is a, a jail reform system agenda. When we're more than just a reform or a prison reform agenda, we're a job growth or a career growth agenda. We're set, we're higher ed agenda. We are economic wealth agenda. And these things just aren't spelled out by our politicians who are asking to represent us. So that's what it sounds like. And even still, I mean... They're saying, I think it's close to 20% of black men say they're going to support Donald Trump. And people look at that as a shock. And I'm like, why? Why are you shocked? Like, what do you mean? Why are you shocked? That's crazy. No, it's not. When's the last politician you talked to? Have you heard talk about an agenda for African-American men? We got an agenda for every affinity group in this country, but African-American men. And so the Republican Party is saying, well, you know, we can give you the jobs that they get that the quote unquote Democrats want to give illegal aliens or they want to give to folks who aren't native to this country. And so that's a trigger, right? That's a trigger because in some places, that's the only only job that you can get. You know, we both know we, we come from Stranger Things communities where you got one or two choices. You're either going to go to the military, or you're going to go to jail. What's it going to be? And so even if you're working, it's, it's, it's you're, you, you know, you're working, you're working in, in agriculture. You're not working in, you know, there, there's no, there are no jobs and, and nice plush buildings and, and a forward education and, and, and becoming a teacher or or you've maybe never even been around somebody who's had that conversation with you. So that's what I'm getting when, you know, for, for years being out there, for, and I never, even as a campaign manager, field director, I hated managing behind a computer. No, I'm going to go out. I'm, I, I got to hear it because that's the way I then shape my campaign plan or my field plan or our communications plan. And I think that's a, a big mistake a lot of campaigns are, don't do. But I will applaud Joe Biden. I think he, I think for the most part, he is doing that. So what's the best way? 
to really get the average voter more informed. Because what I'm seeing at the polls with the last with the last election here in Memphis that I worked, I mean, people were handing out these ballots that people had paid to be on, and people were coming up and asking for those. Like they were like, "I'm going to vote based off of what this ballot says," and it's not necessarily the best candidates. They just paid to be on the ballot. It's a marketing, you know, tactic. So how can these voters become more informed and make the best choice when they step in the booth? You know, I want to be ignorant or oblivious to the fact that, uh, you know, I like to say, go get educated. It's not that easy. A lot of people don't have time. You know, they're, they're taking care of their kids. They're living their lives. They come home from work. They got to make dinner. They got to check the kids' homework. And this is two-parent household, let alone single-parent household. And then they just want their, not even eight hours. They want the six and a half hours of sleep. So they don't have time to look it up. They're like, oh, all my life I've been a Democrat. All my life I've been a Republican. And they they have never really voted in their best interests. And so I would say it's two things. You have to really have an understanding of your community. And that's that's the first part. The second part is to start to challenge the people who are elected. I say, who's your surrogate for my community? Who's your surrogate for my community association? If they don't have one, then you, 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 you charge them to have one because I need you to get to disseminate information back to me. I may not always be able to come to these meetings, but I need to know there's somebody out there advocating and fighting for me. And so it's more beyond. And that's a huge problem in, in Memphis, all those ballots. And obviously there was a court case decided that not too long, a little less than a month ago about the ballots. And so I think, you know, not just taking a if you're here's my thing. I always like to say if you're a voter. You kind of know who you want to vote for already. I like to think you're not persuaded by that, but I, I learned that that was not the case. But I think it takes it takes us going out in our communities and educating folks. It really does. You know, whether you're on the ballot or not, if there's something that you're, you know, hell-bent about, then you need to go out and make other people aware of it. It could be equal opportunity. It could be housing. It could be the Lily Ledbetter Act. It could be the Affordable Care Act. It could be gun right ownership. No matter what it is, if you have a candidate that is abreast of your or is that aligned with your issues then you need to get involved with that candidate's campaign and fight for those issues otherwise you're going to have somebody speak up for you and then i know in at least in the old baptist church i grew up and they said i'm not gonna let a rock cry out for me and that's a lot and that's what we did in 2016 we let a lot of rockheads cry out and speak for us instead of being informed of you know what was on the ballot everybody you know and people think they got to fall in love with a candidate first of all they're never coming over for dinner you're not going to take them out to dinner you ain't you know you're not hanging out with them you just know this is somebody who has, at the very least, the, your best interests at him versus somebody who you, you know, refers to you as a, a, a black person or, or uh, what I've done for the African community, African American community, as if we're a monolithic group. Because what I want to fight for for African American community is not necessarily what somebody in Minnesota wants to fight for for the African American community. So uh, understanding that we're not a monolithic group and we have large, you know, we have, we align with similar issues just like the LGBTQ, Muslim, white woman, black woman. We, we align, we, we have issues just like them too. But what is it that, and I think you've got to be, you've got to be upset enough that your results, you, what you want is not happening to, to go out and really invoke change and get people to rally around an initiative. So I think, I think it's like you have to just care about something. Like you said, a lot of people mm-hmm. are apathetic. So what is it that you care about and then find the bigger issue? If it is, hey, I'm not making enough money, then get behind the minimum wage increase. You know what I mean? That's There's right. like the simplest way to really think about this is what is impacting me the most and what is the issue that I can get behind? So the, that leads me into the next question is, what is the smallest step 
someone can do that has never been in advocacy, has never done anything political, but they want to get involved and they may be afraid to fully step, you know, dip their foot in there. But how do they just dip a toe in to even get involved? Join leaders of color. No. Uh. <laughs> well, yes, definitely. Yes. If they want to be ready, to, if they're ready to dive off the diving board into 17 feet, then you do leaders of color. They will <laughs> get you ready. We will get you ready. No, I, listen, we will we'll definitely get you ready. What I will say is if you even if you, you know, whether you want to run for office or you want to be aware of the political process, don't be afraid to Google, you know, who you who you think leadership looks like and find out how they've been on your issues. You know, you could type in Barack Obama infant mortality rate. You'll get something out of, you know, you, you'll make sure it's a credible source, right? And, and you could actually get this, a lot of stuff you can get online from the Library of Congress. That's a great resource. Research everything what you need, you know, from at the Library of Congress, that factual information. But for me, I always say, you know, if, you, if you're mad enough, you'll do enough. And so me being mad enough or, you know, our leaders that we try to recruit that are mad enough, they're bold enough to step out and fight for what's right. They say, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm going to step out. I'm going to run for school board. or I'm going to run for county commissioner. or I'm going to run for mayor. or I'm going to run for governor. or I'm going to run for United States senator. And I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to start a parent organization because I need to find I, I know enough parents in my community who are aligned with like minded issues who can't take it no more that we still have not figured out the digital divide in Memphis. I want to align myself with other parents who can't take it no more that we, that we can't we can no longer get quality meals into our schools for our kids. I've had enough and I know enough parents who want to fight to make sure our daughters are paid the same wage as their their counterparts. Or oh, I'm tired of seeing black men and black women being killed by police. And I'm going to do something with, and I'm going to run for district attorney. I'm going to run for, I'm going to run for probate judge. I'm going to run to infuse laws. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't have the energy to run. You'd be surprised when your life is on the line, what you would do. And that's why I think that you have to look at this election. Your life is on the line. Maybe you didn't vote, but you know, if you, I mean, maybe you didn't, maybe you're not on a ballot as a candidate, but you need to be on a ballot protecting something because everything is at stake. You know, Roe v. Wade is at stake. Brown v. Board of Education is at stake. You know, the Amer- I mean, the ACA is at stake. The, you know, uh, equal rights is at stake. So if you think there's, oh, they, my vote doesn't count. Like I said, why would they try so hard to take it away? You talked about like getting people into leaders of color. Are you actively taking applicants right now? We are. We're actually going to have a link up this week. We're actually going to have a link up this week and we're recruiting. We're actually going to even ask some of our fellows if they have recommendations on folks who to be in a program. This may be a bigger cohort, but we are actively recruiting in New York. We're actively actively recruiting in Memphis. We are actively recruiting in New Orleans and, and some of our future expansion sites as well. Because although people look at 2020 as the end all be all, I look at 2022 when we can really change state legislatures, when we can really change city councils and school boards and county commissions with a myriad of African-American and Latino leaders across the country that can really invoke change who don't need a task force, don't need to hire a PR firm to come in and tell them the issues that are going on in their community. They already know and they're ready to go to work day one. And that's the thing. Like people don't understand the down ballot is way more important than the presidential election, to be honest, because those are the people who are making the laws that will immediately impact you in your community. 
You know, what happens on the federal level, of course, impacts us all. But if you have the right leaders setting the agenda locally, then you can have a better community and you can hold them accountable more so than you can federal. So, yeah, this is a very important election and 2022 will be even more important, as you mentioned. So how can people reach you guys online if they want to apply or how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, so please feel free to visit us at www.defer.org slash L-O-C, www.defer.org slash L-O-C, or free field or email me anytime at mbland at defer.org, and anything you need, you know, we're here to supply uh, any information, you know, to learn more about our program, to speak about our program, talk about our curriculum, talk about some of our coalition partners and our vision for the future. What we've set out, what we've been able to do in just about one little over one year is nothing to what we think is going to be done in the next five years. So I would just say buckle up because we've, you know, we feel like we've, we're putting the work in. We continuously put the work in. You ask our staff, we are, they're like, dude, this guy's brain doesn't stop. He's always thinking about, can we change this? How can we make this better? How can we make that better? You know, I get on their nerves sometimes. I'm like, that's all right, because I still want to make sure we are putting the best product out and imagining possible. And that's how we we relentlessly think every day. Well, I'll drop all that information in our show notes so that people can have that. But I'm going to tell you, this is one of the most driven people you are listening to a cat that's so driven, so about his hustle and just so real and down to earth with it. So I just want to thank you for being on the, sh- you know, being on the show. I always relish no the chance to hear from you because your insight and your experience is just so enlightening. And thank you for being thank a brother you. who is unapologetically you for standing up for black and brown communities and for helping train the right leaders for public service. I like that Wakanda forever. Yes. You already know, kind of forever. And I just thank you for being you, and, and thank you for thinking about me. And I'm somebody who literally wakes up with a hammer in his hand every day. And when I when I die, it, it'll fall out, but I know it's going to be in good hands. And so, you know, hopefully, we're we're, build, we're building a, a, a group of civic and electoral leaders who will really change the forecast of our future. And Hopefully we're doing everything we can. So, but th- but thank you for your compliments. Uh, and and trust me, I'm only as good as y'all. I'm only as good as all of you. You know the work that all of you do, and I will always look. And you know that's whatever I can do to be supportive of, of you, the city of Memphis, the county of Shelby County, the state of Tennessee, and our country. I'm here to do. Yep, keep pushing for national domination with leaders of color. So thanks again. And guys, that's it. Thank you. Absolutely. Guys, that's it for this week. Until then, keep soaring. Thanks for listening to the Succeeding Over All Roadblocks Lifecast. Follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Soar Lifecast for more tips and motivation. You can also email questions to soarlifecast at gmail.com. Be sure to catch new episodes every week and leave a review of the show. Until then, keep soaring.